I just waiting for the thumbs up? All right. Well, thank you for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. We're continuing through our study of uh, truth for life or truth for living. Um, I keep saying truth for life, uh, and that's the ministry of Alistair Begg, and I get that all confused with what we're doing here. This is not truth for life. This is truth for living. Just that tiny little change makes, it, makes all the difference. But uh, what we're going to be looking at uh, today as we continue these questions, is understanding the Trinity, or looking to at least see what the Scripture says and understanding what the Scripture says about the Trinity. And so we've uh, explored three questions already. The kids in the back are on their fourth question, and we're going to be exploring that question this evening. So the first question we looked at is, what does the word Trinity mean in relation to God? And of course, the word Trinity describes God as one in three. So if we could boil the idea of the Trinity down, that's what we say. One God, three persons that are all fully God. And again, we, we discussed how it's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And, and of course, that's because God is not like us. God is infinite. God is eternal. Uh, God is different, wholly different than us. And Jeremiah speaks about this, that there is none like you, O Lord. You're great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. So again, God is not like us. He is great. He is mighty. And he is, as we saw, uh, born out in Scripture, one God, three persons. Now again, we ask the question, has God always been a trinity? And God has always been a trinity, and we, we tied this to the fact that God never what? Changes. God never changes. Um, in John 17, 24, we see uh, that God has this glory with the, with the Son. The Father and the Son share glory. And we made the point, does God share His glory with anyone that's not God? No. He says, my glory I do not give to another. Uh, so for the Son, for Christ... To say that he shared the Father's glory, it's a statement of deity. He's saying, I am God. And so he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. And then here we see the eternality of Christ before the foundation of the world. And so, again, we see that this has been who God has always been. He's always been one in three. Uh, but is it really important? Is it really imperative for us to understand that God is one in three persons? Why must we believe that God is one God in three persons, each of whom are fully God? And the answer to that is, well, that's what the Bible says, all right? God describes himself in that way as a trinity in his word, so we must trust what the Bible says. Um, even when we don't understand it, we still must trust it. This is, this is one of the harder things to understand about the Christian faith, um, that we, we like to know, we like to have all the details laid out before us, we like to see how things work, we like to have a, a level of understanding in our minds, but the reality is God says things in his word, not contradictory things, but sometimes paradoxical things, things that we can't understand, but yet we need to trust what his word says. The word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. So again, we saw that. So now we're to question four of this discussion of the Trinity. Now, what we've seen is that the Bible describes that there is 
that there's one God in three persons. Or maybe we could put it this way, that the God of Israel, the God of the New Testament, is a trinity. One God, three persons. But does that mean that God is the only God? Does the Bible teach that this trinity, this three in one, is the only deity that exists? And that's the question we come to today. Does the Bible teach, teach that there is only one true God? Now, let me just put this out to you today. If we were to go and maybe not ask, does the Bible teach this, but maybe just ask people in general, is there only one true God? What do you think the response would be of the regular Joe on the street? What do you think they'd say? Yes or no? Okay, not sure. They believe there's a God. Is, is, so is that, is that the only God? Okay, they don't know. Okay, they believe in a God. There are some people who don't believe, there are some people who don't believe in a God or don't know whether or not a God exists, Sarah. Okay. Okay. Okay, all right. So, so there are a lot of people that will talk about that, that there are many paths that lead um, either to eternity or some of them will say, well, there's, there's one true God, but he's manifested himself in different ways in different, uh, different regions of the world and different places like that. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's important that we tackle this question, that we understand um, what the Bible teaches. Now, again, I'm seeking to be directed and guided by the word of God. What does God say in his word. And again, God's word is breathed out by God. This is how God reveals himself to us. So what does the Bible teach? And the answer is the Bible teaches that the Lord God is the one and only true God. This is a claim made by scripture. And we're going to look at that claim made by scripture. And hopefully my goal here tonight is for you to walk away from here and to be confident that the Bible teaches that there is only one God and that the Lord, the God of Scripture, is that one God. Now, the passage we're looking to sort of use as a, as a jumping off board for this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, does anyone know the name or the label that uh, the Jewish people place on this verse? Ten billion Sunday school bonus points if you know that answer. The what? The Shema, yes, or the Shema, the Shema. Yes, hear, O Israel, the Lord, and Lord is all capitals. So when we see that, what is that referring to? Yahweh, all right? Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. Now, um, this passage is telling us that there is one God, or that the God of Israel is one. So I want us to be careful about what this passage is actually saying and then look at how, how it is truly making the claim that there is only one true God. Yahweh is the only God. Now this word, this, this Deuteronomy 6.4 passage, the Shema, or the Shema, is primarily a message to Israel 
that they're only to seek this one God, Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who led them out of Egypt, the God who brought them and delivered them from the slavery that they had in Egypt, and that this God is the only God, not only the only God that they are to worship, but the implication is that he is the only God that exists. Now, the reality is when they were in Egypt, what did the Egyptians believe about God? Was there one God? There were lots of gods that the Egyptians believed in. In fact, they even thought that the Pharaoh himself was God on earth. So, so there was a, a, a uh, culture that they were coming out of that was very polytheistic, that believed in many gods that you could pray to and, and seek to please. Israel was to be different. Israel was to serve the only true God. And of course, God has shown his, or Yahweh, had shown his superiority over the Egyptian gods through what? How did, he, how did God demonstrate that he was more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians? What did he do? What? Okay. Miracles, but the plagues. The plagues were all, I mean, you can go through there, that, that they're focused at some of the, of the Egyptian gods, and they're meant to show that God is superior over them. And, of course, we see that ultimately in the last plague. What's the last plague? Right, killing the firstborn, and it's an indication that Yahweh is the one who holds life and death in his hands. And you see that both in his, his taking the life of the firstborn and also in his preserving of the life of Israel. So God is both a God, is the God who rules over life and death. So Israel comes out of Egypt. We come, they wander for 40 years. We come to Deuteronomy, and Moses is giving the law a second time, reminding Israel. And one of the things he tells them is, listen, the Lord your God, the one who delivered you out of Egypt, Yahweh is one. Israel was to love and to serve Yahweh alone. That is the primary point of what Moses is saying and what God is saying in this passage. This passage goes hand in hand with Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 22 through 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All right? Yahweh your God. All right? And what's the implication of that? You shall have what? No other gods before me. Both the Shema, the Shema, and this end, Exodus chapter 20, which brings us the first commandment, work in tandem to show Israel that they are to worship one God alone, that Yahweh is to be their God alone. And that, that Yahweh is not a conglomeration, and understand what I mean by this. I'm not saying that what is being said here is denying the Trinity, but that Israel's Israel's worship was to be monotheistic. How many gods was Israel to worship? One. Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. There is one God, and it was meant to emphasize the singular worship and the singular service that Israel was to give to this one God. Unlike all the other nations that they had lived in with the Egyptians, and all the other nations that they were going to go into. The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, um, the Canaanites, the Philistines. All of those nations had many gods. 
Israel was going to be different in that they had one God that they sought to worship. Now, the question that Deuteronomy 6, 4 maybe doesn't at least clearly or explicitly answer is, okay, Israel is to love the Lord their God alone. They're to serve him alone. Yahweh is their one God. But are these other gods legitimate? Do they actually exist? That, that, that passage, and we're going to see, it actually does teach that Yahweh is the only God that exists. And we're going to look at that in the New Testament in a few moments. But, but it still brings up the question, well, is Dagon a legitimate God? Is um, Aphrodite a legitimate God? Are there other gods out there that exist and Israel was just supposed to follow or worship Yahweh? It's interesting in um, scholarly literature, there's a term that's used called, um, called the, the Yahwist cult or the cult of Israel. Now, what they mean by that is not the same way we think about cults today, but they meant that Israel was different. And this is something that secular, um, secular scholars recognize, that Israel was different because they followed one God. And that made them, from a secular perspective, cultic in the sense that they were different than all the other nations that were polytheistic. Is that really what the scripture is teaching? Is it just teaching that Israel is to be focused on this one God, even though other gods may exist? Does scripture make the claim that Yahweh is not just the only God of Israel, but he is the only God that exists? Is that what scripture says? What do we think? Yes. And let's demonstrate that because Scripture does make it clear that Yahweh is the only divine being that exists. Um, I'm going to give you three arguments as to why this is the case. Why this is the 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 case? I put place and case together and came up with a weird word. Why this is the case? All right. First reason: Who created all that exists? God, particularly Yahweh, created all that exists. Only Yahweh created the universe. Now, it's interesting. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, and you read through Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, uh, in the beginning, God, El, created the heavens and the earth. But that term Yahweh doesn't come into play at all in Genesis chapter 1. And I think what you have happening here intentionally by Moses is he's saying, the Almighty, the Great One, He created all things. Who is this Almighty Great One? Because again, remember, He's writing to Israel, who is going to see other gods that other nations are, are, are worshiping. So who is this great God that created everything? And when we come to Genesis chapter 2, Moses makes this point. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh, God, made the earth and heavens. So we, we don't need to go very far in the book of Genesis to understand that the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, is the God who made all things. Now we see this elsewhere, particularly in the prophets 
And it's interesting, you know, we'll see this sort of come up a little bit here and there, that, that the name of Yahweh will be associated with the God who made all things, but we don't really see that um, being hashed out consistently until we get to the prophets. Now, we see it a little bit again in the Psalms and in some of the historical books, but can anyone think of a reason why that would become an emphasis of the prophets? Why would the prophets want to remind Israel that their God, that Yahweh, is the one who made all things? What, what would be motivating them to make that statement? Israel was falling into following these other gods. And so the prophets come and they remind Israel, look, the God who brought you up out of Egypt, the God who saved you with his mighty right hand, the, the Yahweh, your covenant God, he's the one who made all things that exist. Isaiah 44, 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am Yahweh, who made how many things? All things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Do you see here how God is, through the prophet Isaiah, making a very clear point that he alone made all that exists? Notice again the, the, the terminology. I'm the one who made all things. So if anything exists, it exists because God has made it, right? That's, that's the implication of that. Everything that exists comes from God. He is the one who alone stretched out the heavens. He's the one who spread out the earth by himself. Now, this is very important to keep in mind because typically the polytheistic religions, the, the, the religions that followed other gods, they would have gods that were specifically in charge of certain things. Right? It's, it, you know, we, we can talk about this when we talk about the ancient Mesopotamian gods, but let's just think about Greek mythology. Right? Who was the god? Who was the Greek god of the oceans? He had the big trident. Hmm? What? What did you say? Aquaman. <laughs> no, not, not Aquaman. Um, well, I think Neptune was, I always think, I, was I thinking of Neptune? Poseidon. I was thinking of Poseidon. And I, I will be honest, my, my, my uh, clarity on Greek mythology and, and uh, the other different mythologies sort of runs together, so I may be saying some wrong names. But, so Poseidon, um, who was the great god? Zeus or Apollo, all right? You see, you see those different types of things. Um, who was the god of love? I mean, it's Valentine's Day. And don't say St. Valentine's Day. St. Valentine's. It wasn't St. Valentine's. Who was the god of love? Aphrodite, all right? So, so they, they would take elements of the world in which they lived and they would assign gods to it. So, you know, if, if, you, if you needed someone to send rain, you would pray to the god who provides rain. If you needed someone to give, to give fertility to your, your crops or, or to provide, uh, um, you know, uh, a growing stock of cattle, you would pray to that particular god. And so it would divide up all the different elements of the world, and they would have particular gods for it. Yahweh comes to Israel and he says, I made what? All things. 
I made the heavens, I made the earth, I made the oceans, I made the cows, I made the plants, I made everything, and I did it by myself. There's no other God that was involved in the creation of all things. So, so even if, and, and again, I'm not saying that this is true, but let's just say for the sake of argument that other gods exist, where did those other gods come from? If, if they existed, according to what Isaiah is saying here, if they're part of all things, where did they come from? God, Yahweh himself. And that is the point that Isaiah is making to Israel. Later on in this passage, he's going to go on and he's going to talk about how stupid it is for Israel to make an idol and worship it. It's nonsensical when you understand this truth. So the argument I'm making that there is no other God but Yahweh comes very, very basically to the point that Isaiah is making. God made all things. We would, should not worship anything else. Jeremiah speaks of this as well. Thus says the Lord who made the earth. All right, Yahweh who made the earth. Yahweh who formed it to establish it. Yahweh is his name. Is there any other God by any other name that made the earth that exists? No. Jeremiah is making that statement very, very clear. We also see this in Revelation, in the New Testament. In Revelation chapter 4, we have the amazing image of the Ancient of Days of God the Father on his throne. And there's this, this just incredible scene of what it's like in the heavenly domain and what it's like around the throne of God. And then there is a song that is sung by the elders that surround the throne. What does that song say? Worthy are you, our Lord and God. So Yahweh El or Adonai. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created what? All things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Now, I think it's important to note here at the very end, he says it is by your will that they existed and were created. We live in a day and age that teaches that the world came into existence not by the power of God and the action of God, but how did the world come into existence? What does, what does science tell us today, the world? How did it come into existence? It just did. It, it willed itself. So if you look at the Big Bang, something happened and you have all this mass and energy that just explodes and, and it was sort of nature's will that the world came into existence, that the universe came into existence. Um, what does... What does God think of that? What do the saints in heaven think of that theory? That the world willed itself into existence? It's bunk, right? Who willed all things to exist? Yahweh. And here's where this can become intimately personal. Who willed your existence? Why are you here? Who brought you into this world? The Lord did. He alone made you. The psalmist speaks about how God formed us, knit us together in our mother's womb. So while we talk about these as sort of big, uh, big ideas, it becomes intimately personal because all things that are created and exist 
are created and existed, exist by the will of the Father, by the will of Yahweh. You exist because God has created you for his glory, for his purposes. So again, Scripture, I think right there, we made our point, right? Everything that exists was created by the Lord. So can there be any other God that exists besides Yahweh? No. But we don't have to stop there. Scripture goes on and is even more explicit, telling us that Yahweh is the only God. Now again, our passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, The Lord are your God, the Lord is one. Let's back up a couple chapters. Deuteronomy 4, 39, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that Yahweh, the God who brought you out of Egypt, the God who saved you, Yahweh is God in heaven, above and on the earth beneath. There is what? No other. There is no other. This is so important for us to keep in mind. God does not exist as even the greatest of lesser gods. There's no one else on his plane. There is no other God but the Lord God. Why do you think Moses tells Israel to take this to heart? Notice what he says there. Know and lay it to your heart. Which I think are two things that are so important for us to keep in mind about our Christian lives. Should we have knowledge? Yes. But is that which should knowledge stop here? No. It has to affect our hearts. You don't think Israel knew that Yahweh was the only God? They did. They had, they had rites. They had sacrifices. They had all sorts of rituals that pointed to that over and over and over and over again that they would practice for millennia. But what was the problem with Israel? Why did they start worshiping other gods? They had the knowledge here, but what did they fail to do? Lay it to their heart. They failed to let that be the very thing that formed the basis and the foundation of all that they were. That is why in our, our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, um, know therefore the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then what is the next verse? Who knows what it says in the next verse? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We cannot just simply have a bare knowledge of the truth apart from it affecting our hearts. And so it should affect us that there is no other God but Yahweh, the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, at the end of the book, God says to Israel, See now that I, even I, am He. There is how many gods besides Him? None. There is no God beside me. And then he points to the very thing that demonstrated that in Egypt. I kill, I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now this would have been an amazingly um, uh, encouraging truth for Israel as they were about to head into a land filled with milk and honey with great vine clusters that were amazing. But there also was in that land what? Giants, fearsome enemies. 
But do those enemies have anything on the only God that exists? No. God demonstrates this in David's time. Remember the Philistines steal the, steal the Ark of the Covenant? They take it into their temple. They place it before Dagon, sort of making a mockery of God, saying, Ha, we have captured Yahweh. And of course, does God dwell in, in houses made of the hands of men? No. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon, and they come back the next day, and what is that idol of Dagon doing? It's bowing down before the ark. It's, God is, I mean, that's, a, that's the grace of God there, showing the Philistines, your God doesn't exist. So they prop their God back up. They come in the next day, and not only is Dagon laying before the ark of the covenant, but what has happened to him? His head and his hands are severed. It's this truth illustrated there's no god beside me there's no one else out there david there is none like you O lord and there is no god beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears listen david is he's seen all sorts of fake gods the philistines the hittites the jebusites there's no one besides Yahweh. Again in Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. Just a quick note, there are a lot of people who would say that, we, that you don't see um, the Trinity or, or multiple persons in the Old Testament. You see it here. Yahweh, the King of Israel, Father, and his Redeemer, who was also called what? Yahweh, Lord of hosts. Who is the Redeemer? Christ, the Son. So here in the Old Testament, you have a clear indication. Both, both the King of Israel, the Father, and the Redeemer are called Yahweh. So now we don't have the Spirit here expressly mentioned, but clear indication that there's at least Father and Son in the Old Testament. But I, I digress. That was free. No charge for that. If you want to tip me afterwards, that's fine. But Notice what he says. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is what? No God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? The answer is resoundingly. No. There is no rock. I know not any. So Israel is being instructed very clearly, both in before they rebel against him and when they rebel against him, that there is no other God. They don't exist. Yahweh is the only God. So the first truth, only Yahweh created the universe. The second truth, Yahweh is the only God. The third truth, other so-called gods are not real.
And this is the consistent message of Scripture. Other so-called gods are not real. Notice what Jeremiah says to Israel. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are what? No gods. Now Jeremiah is coming and he's prophesying to a rebellious people, a stiff-necked, stubborn people, and they have been engaged in all sorts of idolatrous worship. And God comes and, and he is... To some degree, I mean, he's not dumbfounded. I don't, under, don't misunderstand me. God is omnipotent and omniscient. He never lacks any wisdom. But, but the sense here is like, what are you doing? I can go to the Philistines. I can go to the Hittites. I can go to the Jebusites. You know who they're still worshiping? The original gods they've been worshiping. They don't give up on their gods. They have more fidelity, more faithfulness to their fake gods than Israel does to me, who is a real God, the only God. So he said, my people have changed their glory for that which does not what? Profit. Why doesn't it profit? Why don't these gods do anything for, for Israel or these other nations? Because they're not real. You know, if, if, I, if I imagine, it, it's interesting. We even see this revealed in, in society today. There is a quote-unquote religion um, and I'm going to mess up the name, but it has something to do with the flying spaghetti monster. Have you guys heard of this? All right. The flying, I, I figured the, the younger ones among us would have heard of the flying spaghetti monster. Now, the whole point of it is to, it, and it's, it, there aren't really people who are worshiping the flying spaghetti monster. It's made to mock religion in general. But they, they hit on a truth that we see God himself. I could say... I am going to pray to the flying spaghetti monster that he provides everything for me. And what will the flying spaghetti monster do for me? What will he do for me? Nothing. Why? He's not real. There is no flying spaghetti monster. But what those who propose this flying spaghetti monster fail to realize is there is the true God. His name is Yahweh. And so God stands somewhat aghast. My people are going to that which doesn't exist and it brings them no profit. And just a quick aside, when we find ourselves tempted to find our hope in anything else but the true God, it will not bring us hope. There'll be no profit in it. Because there's only one true God. Jeremiah, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Notice what Jeremiah says, how he describes these other gods. They're what type of gods? False gods. A false god is a lying god. It's not a real god. The psalmist in Psalm 115, 4 through 8, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths. But can those idols speak? No, they cannot speak. They have eyes. 
They cannot see. They have ears. They cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands. They cannot feel. They have feet. They cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Because they're not real. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 1. That although the world, although everyone knows God, they know intuitively that God exists. They choose not to honor him as God or give thanks to him, but instead their thinking becomes foolish or useless, vain, futile. Why is their, why is their thinking futile? Because they turn to, in their wisdom... Even though their foolish hearts are darkened, in their wisdom they become fools and they decide to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling animals and birds and man and creeping things. Why is that futile thinking? Because why is it, why is it vanity? Because these gods made in the image of man or birds or animals or creeping things, do they exist? So can they do anything? Listen, worship of any other God but Yahweh is the same as worshiping the flying spaghetti monster. That's the message of Scripture. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, actually appeals to our verse this, morning, this evening to draw to a conclusion the fact that there is no other gods. And so we've gone all the way around to come to the conclusion that our passage today, Deuteronomy 6.4, teaches that there is only one God that exists. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. Now, Paul is addressing an issue that was a problem in the first century church. There were all sorts of idolatry. And there was a question about food because everyone would go to the market and the markets were held by these trading guilds and these trading guilds required allegiance to a particular God. And so if, you know, if, like it would be like us today, if we went into Shop and Save and, and we went to go buy a, 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 a nice juicy ham, all right, now the Jews would not be doing that in that day, but that's what I'm doing. I'm buying a nice big juicy ham. That ham would have imprinted upon it that it had been offered, or that pig had been offered to some god. Is it okay for me to eat that ham? And of course, Paul is, is going to make the argument, it depends, and we're not going to spend the time talking about food offered to idols. We don't have the time to get into that today. But he, he does, in making that statement, come to a very clear conclusion about the god to whom the pig is offered. It says, therefore, as to eating the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. They're not real. And we also know that there is what? No God but one. And there he is quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. For though there may be, and then here he says, so-called gods in heaven and, or, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is what? One God. The Father. From whom are all things and for whom we exist. 
and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul makes it abundantly clear, calling our attention back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other God but him. So how should we respond to this? Well, since there's only one God, then is it okay to worship other gods? No. It's the height of futility because when you worship another God, what are you worshiping? Nothing. And since there's only one God, he alone is worthy of our worship. Secondly, since there's only one God, he alone is worthy of our trust. Look, if you look to something that does not exist, is it going to do anything for you? Has the flying spaghetti monster ever provided anything for anybody, ever? And the answer is no. Why? It doesn't exist. It's not real. And so it is for us if we trust in anything but the true God. We're trusting in emptiness and vanity and uselessness. And then finally, since there's only one God, he alone is worthy of our what? Love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. I think the reality is, is that the idolatry we face today is we look to things that show us that we love ultimately not the God that is, we love ourselves. We place ourselves in the place of God. And the reality is when we do that and we look to that as our only hope in this life, we find ourselves just as empty as if we were trusting in the flying spaghetti monster. How do we know this God? The scripture is clear. We know this God through Jesus Christ. No one, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right hand. Who is that only God? It's Christ. It's, it's almost the exact same terminology, just in a different language as what we saw in Isaiah. Remember the Lord the Father, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, both are Yahweh. Same thing going on here. God and God. God reveals God to us. God the Son, who is at the Father's right hand, He has made Him known. You cannot know God apart from knowing Christ. It's impossible. He is the only one who reveals the Father. As Jesus says in John 14, 1 through 6, let not your heart be troubled. If you're believing in God, then who else must you also be believing in? Christ, me. And this is where Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through who? Me. There's only one God. Scripture has, makes it abundantly clear there is only one God. And there is only one way to that God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, our question again today. Does the Bible teach that there is only one true God? 
What's the answer? Yes. The Bible teaches that the Lord God is the one and only true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And praise God, we can know this God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the clarity that it provides for us. Thank you, Father, that you in your abundant grace and mercy have reached down and have found us, Lord, as your people to know you. You've revealed yourself to us and that we can look to you in faith and we can know the only God through the only way that is your son, Jesus Christ. Father, may we recognize and see the futility and the uselessness of other gods. May we take that to heart. May we not just simply know it as a bare truth, but may we know it as a life-altering principle in the very depths of our souls. That we're looking to Yahweh through Christ alone. Father, work through your spirit, through your word tonight. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.